Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. uncharacteristically athletic. My guest today is Frater Ashen Jassan. And guys, this interview, it, it's it been one of the most personally influential interviews that I've done. You guys have to understand a little bit of context. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Frater Chassan's reputation precedes him. Like he's known for being super hardcore. Like he is a Grimoire traditionalist. It took like six months after the first scheduling of the interview to finally have the interview. And then during the interview, there were lots of technical difficulties and I wasn't sure how any of this would turn out, but after all was said and done, like I texted my friend and I was like, Frater said this and Frater said that, holy shit, this is just really mind blowing. And I sent her a link to the uncut interview because I thought that the information he gave was so important. And it wasn't just the technical information that he was giving. And he gave incredible advice for new witches, like step by step, like what to do. But I think even more than that, there was this philosophical undercurrent in our entire interview. This invitation that he gave for anybody who's doing magic to really examine why they're doing magic. And I don't know, I just felt like I, I finished a therapy session after the interview with him. I hope you guys get as much value out of this interview as I did and that you enjoy it and that you ponder all the questions that he puts forth. Oh, and uh, you guys will notice that I didn't get to ask Frater Chasson about his three favorite magic songs. And that's because his phone ran out of juice before I was able to. So it may remain a mystery forever or... You guys can put in the comments below that you want me to have him back on the show. And then I will pry that information out of him because we all know that those three songs, they're the most important part of the interview, right? Yeah. I hope you guys enjoy. This actually might work and I kind of love this. This is very punk, totally punk rock. <laughs> you know what? I've never before until about two years ago, believed in any of this stuff. Like, I really believed in that psychological model. So I, I actually wrote an article about it for uh, Pathios Pagan about how I was a total atheist, like hardcore Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins atheist. And I thought that magic was truly just archetypes and just people imagining things. And maybe atheist me would have thought, Okay, so the first time you tried to work a grimoire, you saw something in the smoke. How did you know that you just didn't imagine it? Maybe you were already kind of psychic, or maybe you were just very sensitive that day, or, you know, you were probably a teenager, maybe you were being very imaginative. How did you know? Uh, uh, I, I didn't have too much trouble um, believing that something was there, because I had seen spirits since I was very young, 
and uh, my parents had too. So some of my draw to magic, originally on magic in general, was because my father, especially in, in, in my household, uh, paranormal occurrences would happen. Um, I look at magic since uh, some of those experiences were terrifying for everybody and nobody really had a good answer. Uh, the church was you know, believe in God and just pray about it and you know, it will be fine and everybody kind of had an opinion but nobody nobody knew what to do and my draw was magic is I want something that I can utilize that I can have as a tool to, to deal with these occurrences and that's how it happened so seeing spirits even you know my friends and other people um, that were around us you know, they would witness something eventually so um, I didn't it wasn't too much of a matter of, you know, this in my own head because I wasn't the only one experiencing it. Okay. You knew from being, I guess, able to see spirits all your life that this was for real, like seeing the face of the smoke. And then you realized through your own personal experience that when you kept strictly to the grimoires, like whatever... Uh, materials they asked you to use if you were strict about it and you were like as exact as possible you got better results I did eventually um, in some of my early experiments or at least in the very first one the very first uh, goetic experience I got no results I had uh, quite a bit of uh, failure and I put tremendous amount of work and effort into it and uh, it was definitely a trying a, a testing point but um, I refused to kind of just abandon it as something that was false and, and failed, uh, but tried again and, and uh, changed a, a few things in, in my perceptions and, and my my take on the practice. But much later on, when I was getting success, especially with um, the angels at this particular time, I asked one of the angels, is, is this stuff needed? Is there a better way to contact you? And uh, the response I got was very clearly at that point, you know, what you're doing is the reason why we're appearing in, you know, in this dynamic form and speaking you, to you directly. And it had a lot to do with not just the stuff, the actual physical material, but the efforts into making them, into consecrating them, into conducting the ritual like it was a very serious matter, a very sacred matter. Uh, there's a very different um, perception that comes along that I don't even think you can trick your psyche into believing that something is that powerful or something that could be appearing is that real um, if you just do something in your jeans and your t-shirt at a time that's just kind of convenient in your living room. Uh, it's one of those things I, I have yet to hear from someone that has had a life-changing magical or spiritual encounter under those circumstances. And uh, yeah, I just really came from the point of, uh, you know, this is something serious. Uh, these beings, um, I want to contact them in a very real sense, and if I'm going to do so, uh, I'm going to treat it seriously, like this is exactly what I'm going to do. So act the part, dress the part, conduct as the part of a magician that way. And uh, that's just been my philosophy and my mode of working. Um, and it continues on to this day. I, I just have not been convinced uh, by what anyone's said or uh, tried to 
you know, convince me to be otherwise. So, um, yeah, definitely have moved past that point. Um, in my practices, I, it's just I do things a very certain way now because I know which ones gets results and what ways are just not very useful for me because I've, I have not seen or encountered anything successfully utilizing those other methods. Now, are these results that you get because they work well for you? Is it that anybody, let's say I were to do things exactly as you do them tomorrow, would I get the same results as well? It's, a, it's impossible to say, and I think that um, there's a lot of people that, that come to me that they, they've read my books, uh, they really want to experience what I've had. Uh, and then my second book is... Well, let me back up a little bit. My first book is conducting a certain magical experiment, a grimoire, and I had these amazing experiences, but it was just me. My second book is um, started with a question, can somebody else see the same thing that I'm seeing and, and have similar experiences? That was my question. So I brought my friend uh, and my scryer in that um, was not a trained hermetic magician, um, did not understand all the correspondences and correlations with the planetary archangels and, and all of these uh, dynamics. So I wanted to see if they would experience um, the same thing, not even having the same background. Um, and he did, and even more so. But he did not come to those experiments, and we did not experiment starting as beginners, as, as non-magicians. He had, he had been practicing his form of seership, of magical practice, and, and conversing with spirits, other spirits, every single day for years. And I think people get confused on, you know, oh, I'm going to you know, sit down today and try this and hopefully get the same thing. Um, that can be disappointing because that's, that's not what we did. We, we did start something new, but, but both of us were not, we didn't come to these um, practices as we um, I had already been practicing for a long time, and, and I had the ritual down very well, and, uh, and he was a practice seer, a scryer already. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that a lot of people who are, they want to believe in magic, but at the same time, they also are just like, well, I want to believe Harry Potter's real, but that doesn't mean that Harry Potter's real. So they try to do a magical ritual, they don't get results, and then they totally write off magic as being completely false. What you're suggesting is that actually it takes experience to get to the point where you can do magic well. But to get to the experience, you need to get over that resistance of, well, it didn't work this time, so it's not for real. That's, that's Definitely. tough. And just like any art or skill, um, it, it takes that kind of determination. I don't know one athlete or anybody that is exceptional what they do that um, didn't fail several, several times uh, trying to do it, but they, they refused to stop and they kept going because they felt called uh, to being skilled in that. And those are your masters and those are your true practitioners. And unfortunately, everybody else that, that does not have that uh, that determination, that tenacity, um, they dabble or they they get uh, distracted by anything shiny that looks appealing, but they only put as much effort as 
uh, they're getting back, so they're kind of looking for that something to wow them rather than them harnessing that gift from within and moving forward. Um, and I find that in life, those kind of separate the the masters and people who know what they're doing and, and the people that don't. Bingo, right there. It's like people are looking for stuff to wow them. They're looking for the spirits to put on the show. And instead of thinking thinking of it as, what can I do to bring my part into this relationship as well? It's not just a one-way street, right? And do you think that spirits, they can sense who's the dabbler and who's actually legit and serious? Most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> I love that you're just like, yes, for sure. You mentioned the first time that you did the magic ritual, you saw the face and everything like that and the smoke. And then you did it again and you put in a lot of effort and you try to make it as legit as possible and you didn't get really great results. Why I got was no that? results. That you got time. no results. Why was that? You had good intentions. You put in the effort. What happened? Uh, there's a few things that... Um, that kind of uh, short-circuited for that, that first experiment and uh, details that I looked back on and that I even learned about later. But um, the reason being was that, the main reason being was that I did not have the access to uh, spiritual world as, as I gained later on and it's it's quite a story but what happened is that i abandoned um the goetia for a moment and i started with what's called the ars almadel and it's a it's in the lamegaton this grimoire book that has five different books and it's a wax tablet with candles and you're supposed to call them these angels of uh, the four directions and uh that was my first kind of breakthrough and success, and it was through them uh, that I was able to see, encounter, and, and hold a clear audience with more powerful spirits after that. But I, I, I had to go through um, that and probably through that initial failure uh, first before I could start having those experiences later on because I... I was duped into thinking, oh, if I just, you know, practice this and if I just, you know, replicate it, um, I'll get everything I want. And that was the fantasy of magic. So the, I, luckily I didn't give it up. I let go of my fantasy and I went to pursue the reality of magic, which led me to the experiences of the Almadel. And when I went back to the Galatia, I had the success that I was seeking. Your first book, it was... Gateways Through Stone and Circle. So it says in the description, I haven't read it yet, but I want to for sure. And it says in the description that it's basically your journal of how you work the art of drawing spirits into crystals. It's like this old text by some guy named Trithemius or something like that. <laughs> I'm just like, you know that guy, Trithemius? You know him. He's like yeah. pretty okay. Um, so... It was you writing down, like, what happens when you did it, like, exactly as it was laid out. I mean, can you tell me more about that? So the, the book came about as um, simple journal notes that I was uh, sharing or going to be sharing with a few uh, magicians 
uh, who were practicing modified forms of drawing spirits on the crystals. It's a section in, in a grimoire called the Magus, and um, it's attributed to this this abbot that has a lot of writings and, and magical sources associated with him. Uh, and um, I talked about how I made each of the tools. Um, some of them are pretty simple, but some like the uh, the scrying pedestal was this crystal ball that was encased in, in a disc of gold surrounded by uh, black ebony. Um, it was pretty complex and, and difficult to make, but um, I did the best I could according to how the grimoire explained on, on how to make it. And um, and then I started experimenting, and I started getting uh, these pretty profound experiences with the beings, in this case the planetary archangels, as it's uh, listed. And um, it was changing a, a lot of things for me in my life and, and uh, what was going on, and even my perceptions about what angels were to begin with and how real they were. They were, they were still kind of these uh, archetypical um, energies, but not really personified or solidified in, in any way for me until I was having these interactions. And uh, so I wrote it down and I shared it with a few of these magicians I trusted online. And one of them uh, was a writer already. And he was like, you need to publish this. And I told him, well, I'm, I'm not a writer. I don't, I don't know how to do that. He says, well, you are a writer because I'm reading this and, and this needs to be you know, uh, published, and he was uh, a big encouragement and introduced me to his publisher, and uh, it kind of went uh, from there. And I was like, well, I've never shared intimate workings uh, to this degree before, but it seems important, and people will either like it or not like it. So I just kind of put it out there as... as uh, experiment just to see what would happen right now i'm actually working the planetary gates part of working with the planetary gates is taking okay i'm taking like a mug of water right now and using that as my crystal i mean i'm starting off like really basic i've already done the gate of jupiter and i'm gonna be super honest like i didn't really feel much and i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that maybe i wasn't as uh traditional with it as I should be. And I'm starting to wonder like, how much effort does a real beginner, like a super beginner put into this if they don't want to spend tons of money on stuff and they wanna try it to get a taste for it. They're not dabbling. They wanna get a taste for it, but they just don't have the funds or they don't have like all the stuff ready yet. What can they do? They can practice. So the biggest thing uh, for magic to be successful, regardless of the art, uh, regardless of, of how they're going, there's, there's never a one way, one way only uh, to contact these beings. I've never claimed as such. I just claim to, if I'm doing something by the book, I'll be following it. But um, magicians build conduits conduits towards specific beings, conduits along certain lines of practice uh, and resounding energies, and that's something that has to be developed. So it's one of those things that um, we might be interested in, 
all sorts of different spirits and avenues and this. And uh, we expect the first time that, you know, we try to contact the being. Um, it can happen, but it doesn't happen usually that we're going to have this amazing experience with this being. It has to be developed. Uh, there's ways of communication. There's correspondences. There's, there's ways to recognize the being and for them to recognize you. And that's something that has to be developed along certain lines. Those lines can be built in tradition and a certain kind of paradigm of working. Uh, it needs to be developed in, in a certain practice and a way that a person, a magician, a witch, uh, anybody that claims to work with spirits, um, reaching towards a being in a very uh, specific and, and usually developed uh, matter. Um, and that's why I'm kind of big on tradition because if you're working with the archetype of Jupiter, uh, that is a being that's been contacted by quote-unquote magicians and, and people a very particular way over hundreds of years. Uh, and uh, there's uh, things that correspond to that being that it's used to communicating with people a very particular way. So it bequeaths the, the practitioner to follow along those lines because they're already established. Um, if you try to reach Jupiter and you're like, well, I'm going to offer oranges and, you know, use Saturday in the morning because it's my best time to, you know, try to do this because that's the way I want to do it. That may be difficult because none of those things are necessarily associated with that entity and, and that you're going through a lot of roadblocks. Um, so developing a proper set of correspondences, understanding everything about that spirit that you can, and then doing a practice regardless if you're getting, you know, the responses that you like and doing it continuously over and over without um, hesitation or, or getting frustrated. And, and that's going to get the, the sort of results that you're after. There's like the, what is it called? The table of that, that thing where you put the circular thing and you put the crystal in the middle. So that circular yep. thing. Um, is it called? Yeah, the either the table of art or the table of practice or the holy table. Yeah. So there's beautiful ones on Etsy that you can buy. Let's say you're a teenager. You don't have the funds. You can't buy it. Um, make it. Make, make it how? With what? Find a, find a picture. So my recommendation, even if you're not an artist, even if you don't quite understand, make it. Even if you have to draw it first. Because if you, even if you have the funds and you simply just buy something and set a pedestal on it, you don't really have um, any energetic connections to what those names mean, what the directions mean, the, the sigils, nothing. Um, especially if you're using any of the Hebraic or classical names, which I'm still very much um, learning at, but I've learned Hebrew and I've learned about you know, these names and I can do them by heart because I've written them, I've drawn them, I've engraved them hundreds of times. Uh, doing that is making the stuff, if you can, as part of the practice. Or if you buy it, spend a long time studying it, making it something that has particular connection and meaning for you. Would you say then that uh, a young newbie magician, they can actually take a piece of paper and just draw the table of practice like over and over again? Would that be helpful? It's going to be helpful because it's, you're starting to get into the practice because even if 
it's not suitable necessarily for conjuration, mm -hmm. uh, or it's not exactly what you want to use. Even making that during that practice is connecting you to what those things mean, what they are, um, making you familiar, and it's it's going much deeper than then just the kind of conscious learning. You're you're uh, making an association. You're being active. You're doing something active and uh, recognizing those names, those symbols, those sigils um, as something important, as something powerful. And uh, I guess it would be practiced with the right kind of practice. Because if you just draw it and then you stuff it in the desk, um, that's the wrong idea. So let's say they have like a notebook that's just dedicated to practicing magical seals and things like that. So just practice drawing all, all the seals and everything in there. And then once they feel like they've drawn this a lot, they feel like uh, it's not just something that they just printed offline or online, and now they have some connection to it, what's the next step? The next step would be building further correspondences, or as I like to see, compounding correspondences. So they become familiar with the, the seven uh, planetary archangels sigils. Well, what is it like uh, drawing them and saying their name in Hebrew and in English uh, during the proper day and maybe at the proper hour during that? So a little bit further practice and instead of just drawing them whenever, on Thursday you're going to draw the, the sigil of Satchiel or Zadkiel. And you're going to say their name, and you're going to start associating the day, the hour, and correspondences, and Jupiter with that sigil. So you're connecting the dots. You're connecting the, the lines of communication, the lines of correspondences. So that's, that has further meaning. So if you really wanted to break it down, that would be another step that you could take. Um, I wouldn't say it's absolutely essential, but if a person wanted to, if they're just starting out trying to make sense of this stuff, that could be another step to improve those correlations and improve the meaning and uh, you know the depth of you know what all these squiggles and things are and how to use them. Okay, so anybody can like look up the sigils and things like that. So they're just drawing it and drawing it, practicing, um, just ingraining it in their mind. And then after that, I know that there's invocations that they can do. How important is it that you memorize invocations? I think it is uh, important, especially if you're working for uh, a very specific ritual or form of magic, form of ceremonial magic, to memorize and become as familiar uh, with the conjure the invocations as as, um, as much as you can, uh, because the more that your intentionality and your will is connected to what you are saying, and there's no discrepancies, uh, the more that's going to actually have an impact in, in achieving what you're trying to achieve. Um, in the beginning, nobody starts out that way. I didn't. Um, it's a lot of, okay, this is how you set it up. This is what I'm supposed to say in practice. It's almost like a stage play. But if you do that stage play, over and over again, it's something that becomes yours. It's no longer uh, on the book or printed out or something that's foreign. It's something that you own. So that when you speak the conjurations, uh, you're speaking them from 
that intentionality from yourself and that is what's going to give your magic movement it's going to call and get the attention of the spirits um, from that on it, it has um, what I talk about the sun meets it in uh, my Japanese magical tradition which is the triple secret you can't have any division between your thought your word and your deed and your intention all of those things have to flow without separation um, to really get your magic to the point you want it to. You just said it's probably going to fly at the face of what a lot of young magicians have been taught. And maybe it's because of chaos magic or whatever. But it was this idea that you do it and as long as the intention is there, you can choose however you feel like doing it and it's going to work. So the idea of practicing before you even try ritual, I mean... That that's not something that I was told. How long should a person practice, like a new person? How long should they practice? Yeah. Uh, if they want to be a real magicians or whatever term they choose to give, that that practice will be um, ongoing and forever. I've come a long way, but I don't stop in my practice. Uh, I assume just like everything I want to be good at, I continually uh, do as much of it as I can uh, to become even better. Um, and to learn something else, to get new avenues, to make those connections even stronger. So if, if you are magicians, if it's not just a dabbling hobby once in a while, you do magic all the time. You do it continuously. And you do it through the bad days and the good days because it's what you do, not just because it's something that seems fun at the time and you lose interest. Sounds very much like martial arts. Very... How important. <laughs> I'm a martial arts teacher, what can I say? <laughs> well, I mean, it it sounds, okay, and this is what's so interesting to me. Um, I think in today's day and age, it's very difficult for people to want to carve out time to become more than just a dabbler. They want to be wowed, they want the spirits to come in, help them and stuff, but the idea of doing the practice and not getting results but still doing it and having faith and all that that's a really tough shift of mind to make especially if let's say I'm completely new at this I'm watching this video for the first time I'm like 15 years old and I'm like okay this sounds really cool and I'm gonna start practicing it can get pretty dreary it can it gets boring after a while so it's like okay is that just part of what it is? You just have to deal with it? Or is it that every time you practice, like you're literally making some sort of contact, let's say with Jupiter, so your life is going to start changing anyways? Yeah, so when I, I speak to a lot of people and, and clients who, who want to get to their next level of, of magic, and, and a lot of people, if not most people, become frustrated. Let's say just about all people become frustrated at some point, myself included. Um, but I tell them, like, if I'm using drawing spirits and crystals, um, if you sit down there for the hour and you invoke and you go through everything and you get no appearance for the, the spirit, you get nothing, and you're going to feel frustrated, but I would tell them, I'm like, you learned how to do, you got more experience doing the ritual. Um, people need to learn. You have to sit there and speak and, and uh, not be distracted by sitting down in a space for sometimes hours on end, usually hours on end, on any kind of cramps and uncomfortable, you know, positions and holding your body. Uh, there's a lot of things that um, 
people take for granted that until you become very accustomed with them, they're going to be awkward, uncomfortable, and and not very fun. Um, especially where traditional ceremonial and ritual magic is, it's not instantaneous, and you know, if we're used to that instant gratification, it's going to be highly frustrating for anyone to have any real in-depth um, experience with spirits or um, magical ritual that way. It does take discipline. Uh, I do find that, and it, it basically boils down to, um, you know, I kind of take a harder approach with that, that there's a, a very good reason why there's very few talented magicians that I would consider talented magicians out there. There's a lot of people interested in magic. There's a lot of people that are having experience with magic and or spirits to, you know, this or that degree, but, but very, very few what I would consider uh, masters or adepts and, and people that, that really could consider to be highly skilled uh, in this because like every highly skilled individual, there's somebody that, um, frustrations, um, the pains and, and, you know, the time or whatever complaint may be there was completely done aside and they kept going anyway. And my scryer is a perfect example. Uh, he was doing prayers and seership practice for an entire year and getting absolutely nothing. And he was in tears sometimes about it. We would talk about it, but he refused to, to give it up and go, well, it's not working. I'm going to do something different. Uh, he kept going, and, and whether it was a test or the reasons for it, um, when he made that breakthrough, he's getting experiences and he's doing things that I have not heard anybody else in the world being able to achieve. And I gave him a lot of credit for his unwavering tenacity. I mean, he's a practicing druid, uh, whether he's getting his um, you know, amazing interactions or not. I mean, he's dedicated to what he's doing. And that divides the master, again, the master from the dabbler. And um, I just assume that most dabblers, they, they get where they get. Um, you know, if they get frustrated and move to something else, it, it's exactly what it was supposed to be. They're not, they're not ready for that yet. How does one get ready? What, what needs to shift in the mind? What needs to shift in the mind is the conscious perceptions built up by surroundings uh, in the media. And... Uh, my particular way where I made an initial breakthrough was something that um, I had two stages. One I called the Wild Hunt, and the second was my Holy Guardian Angel ritual. Uh, and as a, a template for an example of, of what I'm talking about is uh, I wanted to be a big magician. I wanted to be able to face all these spirits and do this and that. And I read where that if you go out into the middle of the wilderness and basically challenge the local land spirits, and if um, they accept your challenge and you make it through, then you get all this power. Well, I couldn't resist. I was uh, 15 at the time when I did this. Um, but the reality of going out into the wilderness um, at like 3 a.m. Uh, on around Halloween, on the <laughs> around Halloween, uh, and the reality of spirits, not only that, but, you know, animals and everything else uh, where you don't have anybody helping you out, um, didn't have cell phones back then. No, there's nothing that I can rely upon. So I really had to face kind of what was inside. Um, it was a big reality check. And moving through that was, um, that was a shift of consciousness where 
I was able to break away from my my fantasies and actually go. Wait, what to, happened? You know, this is this is the real stuff. Well, uh, it's a long story, and, and I have written about it in, in a book uh, called Holy Guardian Angel, not to pitch, but um, it was quite a, a string of events of things that did show themselves and reveal themselves and tested my sanity and, and really tested what I thought I knew about magic, what I thought I knew about spirits, what I thought I knew about myself. And um, being, getting almost forced, putting yourself in a position where you are forced to let go of those things will really give a person a, a different look of reality. Um, and it's not for everyone. But uh, you have the the younger witches and the younger people where magic's cool. It's it's on TV. It's you know in books, and uh, it, that's the imagination. That's the fantasy, and we all start there. But it's that's not the reality of magic. The reality of magic is when there is nothing else to rely on, and those things get stripped away. You know what do you have left? And, and having to start from that point, um, it's not easy. But um, that was my experience and uh, kind of immersion into the the real world of, of magic. And very few people, I think, have the stomach uh, for that. But it can be frightening and sometimes dangerous. I think it was Gordon White who said that one of the fastest ways to become magical is to spend a night alone in uh, an abandoned mental institute. <laughs> I'd agree, either that or um, I'm kind of a nature person myself, but same idea. The same idea, I'm, you know, especially these people wanting power, wanting to, to really see themselves in a powerful light. I, I don't mean to, to sometimes pick on my, my um, Hagen and New Age, you know, brothers and sisters that way, but there's people that you know, love nature and they're all about nature, their whole spirituality is nature, but they're, you wouldn't get comfortable by themselves in the middle of a forest or mountains or the wilderness. And to me, that that says something very important to me. That's kind of building the reality versus the fantasy. And some people will get angry with that, but it's like you, you have to ask yourself those questions. You know, if, if you're drawn to nature and you're all about nature, but you can't be out there by yourself and, and you can't survive comfortably or you know, really spend some of your time out there, you, you have to look at the reality of, of what you think you believe and who you think you are. Um, and this is kind of a, a hardcore approach that I, I do take with magic a lot of times. Is, is, you know, what are you doing really? It's, I understand the draw. I understand the appeal. But, you know, how, how real are you going to make this for yourself? What are you willing to do to, to test those boundaries? If we stay in a safe place, then you get the safe version of magic, which is funny for a lot of people. That's legit, because I was just thinking about, I can't say the quote, um, like, word for word, but I think it was Terry Pratchett who said, he wrote a book, and one of the lines was, a witch is not afraid to walk alone in the forest because she's the most terrifying thing in the forest. Like, she herself is the one that everybody else should be afraid of. So she has nothing to fear when she's in the forest by herself. And I think a lot of people want to be that badass witch. Um, but, yeah, the idea of going out by yourself in the forest, that's scary. That's super I scary. Do, 
Yeah, and I do it about every year. <laughs> like, okay. No. Speaking of, like, okay, like, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, like, just a lot of young witches who are just going to be super frightened just to even consider, oh, my God, without my cell phone, what if an axe murderer comes out there and rapes me? What if, like, some poisonous snake comes out? I'm in Bali right now, and I'm thinking I could go to the monkey forest. There's a literal jungle here. I'm, like, looking out at the jungle right now. I could spend the night in the jungle and I'm afraid that a boa constrictor is going to come and strangle me and I'm going to be bitten by a million mosquitoes. But also what you're saying makes sense to me. Like imagine if I was completely fearless about going into the jungle at night, that no matter what experience I have in there, when I leave in the morning, I'll be a changed person no matter what, if I survive. Right, and that's and there's no guarantee, and, and a lot of things in Magic Two, people kind of want that they want to be in their stay in their familiar. They 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 wish so much for the unknown, the mystical, the magical experiences that they didn't have before, but at the same time, clinging to everything that makes them feel safe. Uh, and if we go to the psychological model, that is a very very big lesson in what do we really believe in, what do we truly appreciate honestly, with ourselves. And it doesn't have to be the jungle or the forest, but placing ourselves in a place where we can't lie to ourselves anymore. We can't fall back on things that we know will comfort and protect us and everything. And it's, we only really get a glimpse of certain truths when those things are taken away. Um, and if we looked at such things like the Abermelon operation, that whole thing is designed to take that away, to get rid of what we've built up about ourselves and have some space, have some room for something that's new and unknown. Uh, and as people drawn to magic and everything, we got to somehow become intimately drawn and embrace of the unknown. I mean, it makes perfect sense from every angle, whether it's from a psychological or animistic or anything like that, that makes perfect sense. So let's say that we have this determined young woman who's just like, all right, Halloween, I stayed in a cemetery all night, scared myself shitless, but I did it. And, you know, cemeteries are relatively safe, I think. So <laughs> she did it. She survived. She's been practicing drawing all the seals and everything in her notebook that's just for practicing these things that she does especially during appropriate um, hours of, let's say for Jupiter, on Thursday during the hours of Jupiter. So she does that. Now what? She still doesn't have enough money to buy ingredients or buy materials to create something out of like ebony or anything like that. What does she do next? Start to practice scrying. So if her desire is to communicate with spirits, um, angels, uh, or whatever beings they want to so if we're doing the Jupiter template, uh, developing the site and the capacities to actually communicate clearly with spirits. And this is something that in my first book, I go into depth about how to do this, step-by-step um, step, how I did it. And um, that's going to be what I would suggest next. So if that is their motivation, um, it's a lot of reworking the the mind and the perceptions to be able to receive be receptive to something that's not apparent at first, and that does take some practice because 
through society, um, through all of this programming that does happen to us, we um, subconsciously learn to uh, negate that and to overlook and to not see certain things, regardless of people saying that they want to see things. So it's very interesting talking about the psychological model. So what I did was um, I got a black uh, mirror, a scrying mirror, and um, this was early on when uh, I was not married, did not have kids or anything, I was single, and I had the time uh, to do this, but I would scry practice every single night for a while. I do this for months, and for a lot of times I didn't really see anything. Uh, after a while, I started to see some white fuzz and some um, swirling things, and then... But you would just sit in front of the mirror for hours and just stare at it? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, again, what's the practice. If, if we want to learn to scry and to see, we've got to be able to be still. We've got to be able to be receptive. And we have to learn how to look. Uh, you really do, if you're going to do eyes open scrying, it is a practice on how to look. Um, even for some people trying to see those 3D model pictures that it doesn't jump out initially like it does for some people, you have to train your mind and your eye how to see. And that's what I did. Um, because I knew things were there and I knew I had a pretty good sensation that scrying did work with everything that it read. I uh, just had to figure out how to do it. And um, I did. Eventually I saw a bird flying in profile and I could even look away and look back and it was still there. Um, it looked like a photo negative. Um, it was this weird kind of whitish glowy thing, but I continued to, to develop my sight uh, from there. So yeah, I would for a long time, you know, I'd light my candles, look into the mirror and I would just sit and be like, okay, you know, um, let's practice because it was something I was dedicated to is I didn't have a guarantee that it would work. I had techniques of what other people had done, um, but I was committed to do it anyways, even if I, it just never occurred to me that it would never amount to anything. I was doing it regardless. So, but learning how to scry, learning how to develop that sight on those faculties, um, are important. You have to have some space. Uh, your mind has got to understand how to perceive things that have been basically subdued uh, purposefully since they were born, and it can be frustrating. And not everybody has a great capacity for that. Um, some people have stronger senses one way or another, but um, for me it was like, you got to see them, got to hear them. Um, I need to communicate in this way, so this is what I'm going to do. I was just very stubborn that way. It seems like being stubborn is a really good trait to have if you're going to do this. I mean, you mentioned also that you were coming at this from a more scientific point of view. And I just want to remind the audience, science is not just a worldview. It's also a method. You know, you can put the scientific method on anything, really. Mm -hmm. So you were going at it from a more scientific method. So you were experimenting, you were writing down your results, and hence your first book came about. I know a lot of witches especially, they're very resistant in writing down or keeping a magic journal. How important is that? Does that help in any way? Yes, yeah, it's, it's very important. Even when uh, you don't think anything's going on or nothing important seems to be going on, Write it down anyways, because you look back and, um, again, magic is about correlation, correspondence, and patterns, and really getting a sense of what's going on. Uh, if you want to be able to see and be perceptive of the unseen, 
then that's where you start. So you're like, well, it's kind of tired and everything, and it, something inconsequential. It seemed like the candle was a little bit brighter for a moment, but then it, you know, went back down. You know, and you look back, and all of a sudden, you know, you look at your timing and the specific hour, you know, began or ended at that time or another. There might be something that that you don't perceive or you don't really um, notice at first. And the, the practice, the journal gives a very clear record of you consciously and actively, purposefully practicing magic. And when you make that an active, purposeful, and a conscious effort, um, you're going to benefit from that learning, even when it seems like things are not really happening. Um, and it's, it is very important. I tell other witches, listen, just pretend you're like Jean-Luc Picard, you know, captain's log, you know, and just write down what happens in bullet points. It doesn't have to be a florid, like, 20-paragraph, like, dear diary. You know what I mean? It can be just bullet points of things, like your mood, um, just little tiny details, just almost as if you're, like, a, a scientist in the Antarctic. Like writing down, right. it's, it's just it's just a log, you know. Yep, and you can look back, and if you continue to practice, you can be able to really look back and notice things about your your strengths, your weaknesses, things that were developing during certain times, maybe during certain moon phases. Uh, a lot of valuable information for your personal practice that would otherwise be lost if you didn't have those records. Back to this hypothetical teenage girl who's just like, yeah, I'm gonna like do magic. Like, I'm going to go, like, hardcore. So she's scrying. She's doing all of that. And let's say two months, three months has passed. And she's just ready. She is just wanting and dying to make contact and to draw these angels into the crystals. First of all, let's clarify. What do you mean by these planetary angels and intelligence? So... Some of the, the names and, and a lot of the identity of, of these archangels, many of them classically like Mikael, Gabriel, um, Uriel, which is um, not one of the seven classical planets, Raphael, uh, we've been associated through a lot of uh, hermetic and Kabbalistic association. Uh, but their intelligences, their powers um, under the, the creator of... Uh, acting throughout many capacities, but these, these planetary correspondences, um, they're not uh, inevitably defined by this, which means that these planetary correspondences that are placed on the angels uh, don't completely define their whole office or what they can do or what they do in creation. It is uh, a viable aspect of that, so as a magician, uh, if we contact an archangel through this capacity of the associated um, planet, um, we're going to be working with them on those aspects. So again, Jupiter, Satchel, Zadkiel, uh, we call upon him or it through this capacity. We understand that we're going to be working with um, health, wealth, and prosperity, um, the jovial nature um, being able to excel. Um, so when we talk about a spirit's office, that's what we mean in, in ceremonial magic. It's, it's what they're about, what they can do in that capacity. Um, so the communication can be established along those lines. The exchange is established. 
So asking it questions that have to do with its office in that capacity um, would be beneficial. You know, we want to go too offline because, for one, that it can make the communication very um, petered out, and for two, it just you don't really accomplish what we're doing at that point. So, um, yeah, Cassiel uh, associated with uh, Saturn as we're going down, and then Satyel is for Jupiter. Uh, Mikael is associated with the Sun. Samael is associated with Mars. We have Gabriel with the Moon, Raphael with Mercury, and Anael, Haniel with uh, Venus. Um, so each one of those um, connecting to those particular kind of energies um, uh, is, for one, amazing, but uh, two, can be very empowering for trying to, if we're trying to achieve something along those lines, like I said, so for Jupiter, we would be looking for more wealth or healing or prestige or, um, you know, this kind of jovial nature, maybe something even with industry in that way. Going back to, let's see what I was doing. So I'm trying to go through the planetary games and I'm doing it through um, Rufus Opus's book, what he lays out. Mm -hmm. So I first said Jupiter. And from what I understand, there's like the planet and then there's like the angel and the angel isn't actually like, the angel with the wings and in the Bible, this angel is more like, you don't, if you work with Jupiter, the planet, the planet is sort of like this force. It's sort of like, I'm just Jupiter. And so it doesn't really get you versus the angel. It's sort of like a little bit more, I don't know, relatable. So that's why we're working with angels. So people who are going to get hung up about, you know, oh, is this like a Christian thing? It's not a Christian thing, right? It's just a name that you put on something that's easier to talk to than actual Jupiter. It's, their identity is, is really interesting, and this, um, I think, goes um, a bit when actual practice and experience, uh, maybe versus uh, intellectualization or idealization of what these things are actually about. Mm -hmm. So when uh, my very pagan uh, seer and I evoked these planetary quote-unquote, archangels um, to appear so that we could see them also to speak so that we could hear them and, and record and write down what they said. Um, I was very much of the, the similar aspect, even um, a little bit before I talked to them on my own uh, before, but I, I got the same kind of messages because I was expecting them to be a little bit different from my scryer. But they weren't. Um, they came across through him and through speaking that um, the creator and their functions uh, were very much in almost this kind of classical sense. Um, I wouldn't say they were overly Christianized and everything, but um, they very much talked about God and these conceptions about how human beings treat each other and, and what we were going to do with these teachings. Um, it was a lot more than, than we were expecting, but they were there. And there were even some arguments I had with my, myself when I was recording this book, because um, at some point I almost wanted to, to change them around to be a little bit more universal and maybe a little bit more modern-day PC. But, um, you know, I had to come to the aspects like, well, I'm either going to be honest and pretty much write down what these being said or not. And, it, you know, my own beliefs... You know, if I'm just imprinting my own beliefs upon them, that's that's kind of getting the wrong idea for me writing this book. So saying that 
the angels, some of them, yeah, you could really see some wings. Some of them were firing. Some of them were exceptionally beautiful. Um, they, some of them were very intimidating. But they were angels. They appeared in anthropomorphic form. Um, they were very much um, in in about the Creator, uh, Archangel Raphael. When I talked to him, I'm like, "Can I include what you're saying in the book?" But he demanded that a prayer to the Father be included before and after. That's just something he said. People may not like that, or people might think that, um, well, that's just my perception. And I guess it was mine and my scryer's interaction with them, but that's that's what happened, and that's coming from two people who are not, you know, tied uh, to the Christian thing or the Judeo-Christian, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, mentality. But, uh, in all fairness, the drawing spirits and the crystals is a Christianized form of magic. Um, and it might come as a bullet that most of the magicians and the wizards of medieval time were priests and people that could read and write to begin with and had the time to actually do these things. But uh, this was something that was hard for me initially because I was very much Celtic, pagan, druid. Um, I had gotten burned by the church like most of us have. Uh, and I was not very happy about doing these implications, these Jewish and Christian implications of God. But um, there was a point of integrity that came up, and it's like, well, I'm either following what this thing says, uh, or I'm really doing my own thing because I can't stomach you know, all of the stuff that you know I hate because I've had all these problems with it. That was my path. Um, but the angels appeared and said uh, what they did, uh, and how much was that you know called because it was a Christian working of magic. I don't know. I just recorded what they said, what and what happened. So my my understanding of working with them through the years um, is that they're definitely not tied uh, and confined by any one religion, but that their offices, uh, in a classical sense, they're familiar with it and they work along. They're a lot more pious and uh, very much a classical angel in some sense more so than I imagined that they would be. I was not expecting that answer at all. <laughs> I didn't expect them to do that way when I saw them. <laughs> and we're talking about uh, your book, not the first book we were talking about, but this is Gateways Through Light and Shadow, right? This is the Correct. second book that we're talking about. Gateways Through Light and Shadow, a true relation of what transpired between Frater Ash and Chasson his scryer Ben Max Stefan, I'm so sorry if I'm butchering that name, and the spirits. So I, as of my press, I bought it from Miskatonic Books. Yeah, so there's also um, Frater writing about his experience before and after uh, the, the sessions with the spirits, helpful charts about um, items. I guess things that one needs when working with the spirits, the seals or the, the sigils. Okay, so let's look at some of these questions and the answers that the spirits gave them. I'm interested in knowing uh, the types of questions and 
um, from what I know of Frater Chassan, it's not like he's asking questions like, you know, like, who's going to win the next Academy Award for Best Picture? These are going to be uh, deeper questions about life, about how to become a better magician, about the world beyond. Oh, here's a good one. So this is the invocation of the Archangel Sandalphon. And this is on page 326. It's question 14. So this is a more personal question that Ben and Frater Chassan asked of Sandalphon. Uh, we thank you for your teaching and wisdom to strengthen us and assist us on our path and purpose. Do you have any final words for us to help us further on this journey? And so the Archangel replies, you're both being called to set aside distraction because it's time. Wait, did this Archangel just call them out? <laughs> As you've progressed in this work, like the carpenter or the sculptor, you have come closer and closer to the original self. This work can only be entertainment until it is focused for purpose. Ooh, this is kind of deep right here. This work can only be entertainment until it is focused for purpose. To further the plan, the song, the play of the creator. To be a magician, to be a druid, is to set aside distraction for the benefit of others. In many ways, your life will not be your own. Accept that truth. Make decisions in that truth and your effect on the people you know and many people who you will never meet or even know exist will resonate and remain long after your physical bodies have fallen into dust. It is a choice of clear understanding to laugh at your own. I, originally, I can't remember the account now, but it's, you know, it's a book oh so God. thick and um, uh, the bragging rights don't go to my, you know, copious writing. The, the reason why it's so thick is um, we evoke these angels and we ask sometimes these very complicated questions, sometimes magical, sometimes religious, sometimes, um, you know, just secrets of the universe kind of things. And not once did we get a yes, no response. We've got amazing detailed responses right then and there. Um, all of the transcriptions come from audio recordings of the actual rituals that we perform so that I got word for word what was said. And then I didn't, so I didn't mess it up or try to put my own interpretation into it. Was it your scryer, Ben, who would talk for the angels? Or we can actually hear uh, another voice that's neither of you guys talking. He's, he's repeating back what is being said to him during the, uh, the sessions and the audio uh, recordings. But, um, yeah, the, the recordings are fascinating because on certain points you can hear us gasp and, and, and do things. Uh, some other things that happen during the ritual. And then also, which is also included in the book, is uh, kind of our debrief. We would exit the room with our minds blown, and we'd spend a couple hours talking, what just happened? How is anybody going to believe this? Um, you know, what was your take on this? Did you see this? Yeah, I saw this. This is how it appeared. Just, you know, really trying to um, uh, assimilate and, and, and recall everything that had happened during those sessions and they were amazing and, and the book is the contents of those experiments those experiences we have would you say that your first book it's a good primer for a new magician who wants to do planetary magic and then the second book is sort of you know q a with the angels yeah so frater rufus opus um and he's one of the magicians that i first corresponded with and he's 
the one that kind of got me into the Tritemius um, thing to begin with. Um, and I really did take the traditional route. So people interested in my book are going to be the ones that um, they really wanted to try this experiment, quote unquote, by the book. You know, how to how can I make this system work without kind of doing my own interpretation, so to speak. Uh, and I do, of course, have some of my elements coming from my own background, but yeah, the first book is my understanding of magic. This is how I learned to scry. You know, here's some practices to learn to scry. This is how I made the tools. This is what the tools do. This is how they're used in ritual. Um, and in the back is kind of neat because I started to do this already, but I, um, I had my whole uh, notebook of my own experiences by myself, and I include word for word, the first experiment that I had with the Archangel Saturn. And what's neat is when I come back with my scryer some years later, I talk to the Archangel and ask him about the things that he showed me um, during the events of the first book. And it's wild because the symbols and things I saw correlated things that were going on then at that point when I was with my scryer and things that had, had even not quite happened yet. That turned out one of the that turned out to be one of the biggest accomplishments uh, in magic that, that I've achieved so far. So it's kind of kind of a neat uh, thing that way. How long does a person have to practice and, and do scrying and all that before they can get results? Six months, a year, two years? And this is the question that gets asked by everyone, and uh, sometimes they do revert back, which is kind of can kind of make some people feel downtrodden, but um, there's a quote in, in uh, one of the magical manuscripts that said, a magician is born so forth from his mother's womb, or her mother's womb. Uh, all others that assume the function are unhappy. It's kind of like, ooh, a killer. Uh, everybody has, everybody, a lot of people have perceptions and, and inclinations to various degrees. Um, Magicians in most cultures, like shamans, people called to a vocation. When the practice of magic becomes a way of life, it's it's something that usually gets their signs to be to begin with. Typically, uh, parents have abilities. Parents on, on both sides of my family just happened to, uh, and they were working things, but none of them were trained magicians. Uh, but I think that's a big part of it. So that's one, uh, and then two. The, the call and the practice to actually do this, things in life will uh, continuously call a person to become adept and, and to practice and to become immersed in the spiritual world within the magical world. It's, it is a calling. Um, and it's just like not everybody's an Olympic athlete. A lot of people would love to do that, but, you know, sorry, reality hits. Not everybody's going to make that cut. Um, there's people that Yes, they are born with talent, but the real master is the ones that develop it, and they develop it without ceasing, regardless of what somebody says, because there are no guarantees. You know, how long does it take? Is it going to take me six months? Who knows? Some people might just take a week or a day. It could take somebody years. Um, that's part of that unknown, and people want certainties and magic that way, and they're not going to get it. That is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow, and... You know, I think that's one of the reasons why, this is my unofficial theory, of why magic became super popular. I mean, of course, the internet, but also this idea 
that chaos magic was able to put forth, which is that anybody can do magic. Anybody. Uh, what, what sells the books? I mean, what, what are the most popular things, the most popular books and sites and everything? It It is the everybody can do this yeah. kind of thing. That's that's what sells it. You get the magic for dummies, and, and yeah, anybody can do this, but um, that's a lie, unfortunately. <laughs> it's just not everybody can do anything. I mean, there are other things that I still find fascinating. There are things that you can work on and get better, but you know, for some aspects, there's just some people are going to have aptitude and a calling towards things, and then everybody's going to find um, they're going to find their competency and various things on various levels. But you know, anybody telling anybody can master anything. Um, is, is a lie. It's a gimmick. It's, it's something to sell and to draw people for a purpose. And um, that's how it is. Everybody's on their spiritual path on a different level. Not everybody should be or needs to be seeing spirits and communicating with them in any dynamic fashion. It's not supposed to be that. What are the benefits to... Okay, let's say that a person accepts. This teenage girl, she accepts that she may work at it and it may not happen for her. But what is she working towards? Like, why is it such a great thing to get in contact with these spirits? Such a perfect question. And that is the, the thing that they really, really need to answer themselves. And that's part of that moving towards the, uh, the truth and away from the BS. And that's part of what I was speaking down to kind of breaking down the ego or getting away from the the fantasy of why they think they may be called towards that. But that is the real question. You get it right on the head. What What is the real reason? What is the real why? Uh, what is it calling for some people? You know, is it, is it called for power? Do you have some calling to, to be able to manipulate things uh, over people, situations? Do you have some sort of sense of power? Uh, powerlessness, um, you know, what, what is the, the truth behind doing this? And that's very important for people to ask that question and to find that answer within themselves. Um, and again, that's kind of it, a lot of times goes, goes putting yourself in a situation that moves past the mental chatter and the defenses of comfort of the ego to really find that answer. Is there a right answer? It, there, there is a right answer, but it's going to be for them. Uh, to answer it for everyone would be uh, foolhardy, it would be ridiculous, because it's not the same answer for everybody. Is it legitimate to honestly admit that the reason why is that you want to become an uber-mensch or uber-femme? Yeah, so in, in what's, what's the real reason for that? Like, what is so important that, that you need to become that? What are the, the true meanings? Is, is that a truth or is that built upon something else that is based on the non-truth or based on the fear and based on the shortcoming? And these, these again, are stripping away layers. And um, Are we heading towards the reality of magic or are we headed towards the fantasy of magic? I know a lot of, or I've heard of a lot of high priestesses and, and people in the company, but the as far as personal power and control over themselves, their environment, their money management, their relationships, 
Um, and people are people. It's not like we don't make mistakes, but a lot of people try to feel or label themselves to be as powerful as possible while everything internally and externally is falling apart. I feel like I need to ask myself that question because sometimes I think I got into magic because I realized I was a good manifester. Like I would think about something and then the chances of it happening, you know, law of attraction, it works really well for me. And I was like, oh, I must naturally be good at this. That, that was sort of my, my naive sort of initial thought. But then there's also an aspect of me that thinks, well, there must be something more than this reality. You know, there must be more than just me being able to manifest, I don't know, $500. There must be something more. But it's like, why? And I'm sure a lot of people would probably have that same sort of desire, that same sort of seeking. But then the question is, why do you want to know more? Why do you want to go even deeper? Like, why is this not enough? Why is being in Bali surrounded by jungles and going to the beach and stuff, why is that not enough? <laughs> and that's the question, right? That's the question that I would ask myself if I were to put myself in that jungle overnight, surrounded by boa constrictors and mosquitoes. <laughs> Be careful about doing that. I don't want to go on record for going yeah. to the jungle because it's you know, some... Um, aspects but that is that is the question and, and uh, that you know that yearning to strive for whatever ends uh, to why become better why seek something different than you know than what we're perceiving and, and what we're doing you know right now and um, I mean that's deep philosophical question regardless of magic for sure and um, I think that is that person's yearning um, I did get something neat from one of the archangels that um, was probably one of the, the, the least religious-y uh, type things, but it came from a very sacred point. And uh, the angel said that when people pursue and, and actively, um, actively become and, and actively move with their making and their purpose, with basically what they are here to do, he says that is there's no other greatest form of devotion and praise than that, regardless of what they believe. So that is the ultimate devotion and praise is for people to fully embody and do what they are meant to do to become what they are meant to become. And he didn't say anything about blunders along the way about not knowing what that is a lot of times without struggles, without all those things included, but actively doing that way is, he says, that's it. It's like, there's no higher calling. There's no higher praise uh, than doing just that. And that's something that sticks with me. So you also make, I guess, talismanic items or you make magical items. Mm -hmm. And uh, is that your main sort of way of making a living? Not at all. <laughs> um, it does help. And uh, making the, the talismans uh, for people uh, has been amazing. And it's something that I didn't, uh, uh, again, didn't perceive. I was very um, uh, seclusive and most reclusive with my magic. I, I kind of kept everything to myself for a while. And, and even with some of these early experiences, I just wanted them for myself. But um, I found making these 
these talismans, um, and not just the making, but they're consecrated through the beings, the angels, and the spirits that they're associated with. So it keeps my practice ongoing. I'm continuously doing magic, and now I'm doing it at a professional level. And I'm learning all the time. I'm getting better at my craft all the time. I'm becoming more familiar with these spirits. People get this little disc of metal that, you know, I've engraved or whatever it is, which I'm a, by far not the greatest artisan at these things, but they've been consecrated by these spirits. And they're like, since I got this, you know, this and this has happened in my life, this has changed, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And, you know, so sort of these testimonials has just been, wow. But it's also been humbling because it's not, I'm not giving magic to people. These are items that are basically blessed, consecrated by these spirits, and they're becoming active in these people's lives. And it's amazing to see that work uh, from where I am here. You know, one of the things that I saw on the Facebook feed that I thought was super cool is that you also make wands. So I'm sure a lot of people, when they think about wands, they're thinking about Harry Potter. And uh, I guess what I found interesting is that you would talk about like, oh, this is like made out of this wood and that wood and, and this and that. And at first I was like, does, is there a difference? And, and then you would also say something like, oh, you know, I hope it goes to like a good home. And I'm like, does that make a difference? So <laughs> speaking of the wands, like what's up with all the different woods? Why is it important that it goes to the right person? So anybody that's a magical practitioner, especially Western well, East too is, we have a lot in the East as well. Um, we're dealing with correspondences, how one matter, one thing relates to another thing relating to another thing. And, and earlier you heard me talking about conduits, to be able to affect things magically, we want the most powerful, consecrated, concentrated, after it's consecrated, concentrated uh, conduit that we can have towards spirit, towards an objective, towards anything. So we use sympathetic or corresponding materials. So it just so happens that hazel, um, hazelnut is made into a powerful uh, wand and it's not even isolated to one traditional culture. It's something that's talked about in Celtic lore, um, all throughout the West and the Grimoires and this thing that's associated with mercury, um, with this uh, transcendence of not only energy, but communication, intentionality, and exchange between the physical and the spiritual, being able to enact a consciousness. So um, that's occult knowledge. So if we understand those things, we have that occult knowledge, that correspondence, then it's not just a kind of wood. Uh, it's a particular kind of material that has a very specific correlation uh, to these very occult principles. That's how we make these things work. So if you have a magician that takes a wand and cuts it on the first hour on the day of Mercury, which is Wednesday, that we're compounding uh, correspondences and correlations. We're making something very powerful uh, with a very specific intentionality, and we're just compacting it into this material to resonate uh, with a very specific Office, Wait, is that what you do? Camera. You literally go out, like on the first, like if you were making that sort of one, you literally go out on Wednesday, first hour of Mercury, and you cut down like a, a branch. Yeah, hardcore. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, when I make things, um, you know, I really try to, to go as, as closely as the recipes have it because that's 
what I've found has, has worked. Why do magicians use wands? And, you know, Eastern sorcerers also use wands. Why? Well, you have um, a lot of things coming together from uh, tradition, first of all, because even in Egypt and everything, uh, a wand, uh, first and foremost, um, is an implement of authority and office. And that is why. Um, it is something that is designated just like other vestments and a phylactery and other things that is designating you as um, a person of particular standing within the cosmos. And the spirits will recognize that if it's done in the correct way. So that's the first part. Um, energetically, a wand, if it's made and consecrated in the proper way, uh, it is going to act as um, both an antenna and kind of this magnetic um, and electromagnetic kind of uh, implement that I could explain and sounds technically kind of fun, but until you're a magician and holding a real wand and, and acted in a very real sense, um, it is the sensation and the feeling having that in your hand and what, in, and what it does while you're experiencing it that gives you that aha moment. Um, and that's something that I've also found through practice and experimentation rather than somebody just telling me this is what the wand is for and this is what we do with it. Because you know, like uh, in Rufus Opus's book, when he lays out the, the, the ritual that you're supposed to do, he says it's okay just to use your finger instead of a wand. And yeah, that's Rufus. <laughs> and, uh, and we're good friends too, but uh, one of the things I love, I made him a traditional ebony wand. And uh, he's been on the podcast we've talked personally. He's like, yeah, you know, I do it this way, but wow, you never understand just how powerful this is until you get you know, the real thing in your hand, and this thing works amazing. So when you're working with something viable that way, it's not just a prop. It is impacting it. If you're holding a real wand, if you're working with real magical tools, um, and you're a magical practitioner, you will know. You definitely will know. <laughs> there will be a difference between your finger and the implement. <laughs> I guarantee it. Well, you know what? I am guessing that there's going to be some newbie witches who are watching this video and who are just like, well, I'm just going to buy a magical implement, like right now. You know, I'm not going to, because I want results right away. I'm too impatient to do all the scrying and the practicing. So let's say that they order something from you, Frater. Will it make a difference? Like, will there be a noticeable acceleration or difference in how they do magic if they get like a consecrated wand from you? From what my clients have said, then yes. And I just have their testimonies and what they've told me. And that's uh, the, the proof that I have, that's the only proof that I have is, is uh, when they do that and they respond to me and they're, they give me the feedback that they do and, and that's why I continue to make that. And I think that's why people continue to order from me is because they do work and it's not just a, you know, kind of a pretty thing. And then maybe they don't have to, if they buy it, do they have to do as much work? Magical implement will never replace the work that it takes to actually do the magic. Um, these all assist the magician, but if, if they're not able to um, connect the conduit properly through what it's functioning for, and they don't have the intrinsic, not just knowledge, but ability uh, to use it, then uh, it won't matter. Because if I give a, 
magically consecrated uh, implement to somebody who is not a magician. Um, you know, unless it awakes something that's latent inside them, it's not going to do anything for them. Uh, these are things that you can't just... Uh, people cannot be given powerful magic uh, to do. Uh, magic's already there and things can be powerful, but it does take somebody with the aptitude uh, to be able to utilize it for it to matter. What about a dabbler? Somebody who knows about magic, but it's kind of like a part-time magic person. Can they become almost full-time results if they use a magical implement? Uh, I have, I've not heard of, I guess I can say this, um, people who have um, gotten like a full set of drawing spirits and the crystals implements from me, um, and they may have been expecting that, that they would just automatically launch off and start having the same experiences uh, I and my scryer were, and that didn't happen, so that might be another fantasy. So no, I mean, it can assist them, yes, but if they're not practicing, if they don't have those connections established, again, the, the, the tool's not going to turn them into um, an amazing magician. I don't think, I've never heard of that happening. It'll help, but it's almost like, you know, I used to be a makeup artist when I was in college, and it's sort of like when you have really good brushes, makeup brushes, then it's easier to put on makeup versus if you get, like, really cheap ones. But if you don't know how to do a winged eyeliner, the best brush in the world ain't going to help you, girl. It's just not. Exactly. That's like giving me, yeah, the makeup brush and stuff. <laughs> I'd still make you look like a clown before I could do anything <laughs> spectacular. So it's, it's a skill. It's a practice. You have to know how to use the thing to begin with, right? Well, you know, you mentioned uh, HGA, the Holy Guardian Angel, before. So that's something that also is becoming kind of like popular now, and it's because of that movie, Dark Saw. And... I don't want to call anybody out, but there's this one group I'm in, and it's filled with women, and a lot of them are new witches, and they think that the Abramelin, it's that movie. Like, they think that everything in that movie is, uh, no. And it's not. And it's not. What's no. Yeah. They even have, uh, they even use lakey symbols and, and stuff on that. Um, I love the movie itself, but it's definitely not the Abramelin ritual at all, and, um, Bless their hearts, that's too bad to even think. I mean, it, you can get the Abermelon book. It's not a big secret. It's easy to buy, but um, it is different. But the one thing that I do love about that movie is it shows the intensity and the duration and also the, the doubt and, and the difficulty that goes into doing something that serious. Um, I thought they portrayed that well. But, um, yeah, I mean, what they do is not Abermelon. So... Um, if they're interested in getting the truth, you can get the book, um, or talk to one of us. Uh, Aaron Leach actually runs a group specifically for Abermellon. There's somebody who's actually kind of done it, you know, by the book and everything. If, if they really want to learn about it, you know, in the movie, like right before she actually gets um, in contact with her HGA, she like goes to the basement and it's filled with demons and stuff. Is that similar-ish to what happened to you when you went into the forest a long time ago by yourself at night? 
Uh, I had some amazing things happening, but more than anything else was the destruction of ego. I went in there thinking I was going to have this grandiose magical experience. I was out in the middle of nowhere and I was fasting, uh, and nothing was happening for a long time. I was out there for nine days. Um, I probably looked like a crazy person at one point because I was getting delirious um, because I didn't have enough sustenance, and um, there were long days of praying and, and not doing much. Um, but in that time, um, I really let go of all the fantasies that I had built up about not only magic and the HGA, but myself. And I didn't realize that's what I was going out there initially for because until you have that room, you're not going to get the truth of your HGA. You're going to have your imagination in your mind trying to make up stuff of what it thinks this stuff is. Unless you have the space to actually receive something, emptying your cup, so to speak, you're not, it doesn't matter what anybody says or what you can read about, you're not going to be able to think your way to your guardian angel. So everybody has an HGA, but can everybody get in contact with their HGA? Can everybody? Potentially. Will everybody? No. How important is it? For any person who's going to practice Western magic, how important is it for them to get in contact with their HGA? That depends on the level of magic and the level of uh, their life pursuits and, and what they what they want to do. How much they're willing to risk and let go of in order for that pursuit. That's a that's a vague answer. <laughs> So, it's, yeah. what does that mean? It's something that can't be told, and it's something that can't be thought through or, or controlled that way. That's why. It's because it's, it's going to be a highly unique, life-changing experience for that individual. It's not going to be something that you can plan for, predict, and again, control consciously that way. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, there's a lot of just mainstream interest on getting in contact with your HGA and doing the Abramelin ritual because of that movie. And a lot of people are wanting to do it. Um, you've done it. And I'm assuming that you have, you know, contact with your HGA. What's that like? It's like nothing that can be explained. <laughs> it's like nothing that can uh, be put into rational words. Of, um, the only thing that I can recently is that, uh, it is an undoing of yourself, but a stripping away of fantasies that you were holding tight as being confirmed realities. That's so interesting. Like throughout this entire conversation, what I've noticed is this idea of like cutting down on the fantasy of what it means to be a magician, cutting down on, I guess, egoic attachments and egoic sort of inflations of becoming like the magician and trying to figure out what it really means to you to go through all the, the trouble, basically, of all these rituals to do what? What are you trying to get from all this, right? And I think a lot of people, they don't think towards that. They're just thinking about the actual ritual itself. I, that's what I did, you know? I was only thinking about the ritual. Mm -hmm. Am I doing it correctly? Oh, I have to memorize it? Okay, I'll memorize it. But I'm not thinking, well, why? Why? What, what do I want from all this? So, I mean, I think that's 
definitely one of my biggest takeaways from talking to you. Actually, it got a lot deeper than I expected because I, I just thought that you were just going to say, oh, you know, the ritual is like this and the angel told me this and stuff. And it's like, cool, yes, awesome, great. But now it's almost like an existentialistic thing, right? <laughs> like, what does it mean to be a magician? <laughs> What's this all about? And I'm thinking also, you know, because I'm sure you've heard of that new show, Sabrina. There's going to be a whole lot of witches that are going to watch this and be like, yes. And, you know, Sabrina, from what I've heard, I haven't seen any episodes yet, but I heard that, you know, whatever consultants they had on the show did a pretty good job. Like, they're putting in lots of, like, good occult stuff in there. But, of course, it's glamorized. So I'm sure there's a lot of people, especially young women, who are going to try to get into witchcraft and magic after seeing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? And maybe they're also going to be like, I'm just going to buy a whole shit ton of magical implements, maybe from you, Father, so that I can skip all that and go straight to, like, the conjurations and everything like that. But from what I'm hearing from you, it's the, the conjurations and the hearing of spirits and stuff. Like, you got to figure out why you want to actually get to that point. Because it's not easy. And everybody yourself included, has been frustrated because it didn't happen as you thought it would or happen as fast as you thought it would. So why are you even doing it? Yeah, and the, the path of magic is is unfolding in so many ways. Um, same thing for me. I remember back in, in my day and stuff, I think the craft was uh, what got a lot of people, men and women, into the magical things. and. Uh, there's practical things. I was one of them. I tried a little spell or something, and I'd get a reaction. Like you said, some of the corners, ooh, I can, this is working. I can make this work. Well, cool. Um, and you can do that. And some people, they, they kind of stay at that level. You know, I do this little spell. I need money. I need help from my relationships. I need things. Uh, magic has been practical. That's, that's something that's ongoing. I still use it for those ends, too. If it's not practical, um, then you're living an aesthetic life, and you're more of a mystic than a magician. Magicians is about manipulation, making things happen. It's that simple. But um, if you just kind of stay at that level of doing sympathetic or corresponding magic, that's that's fine. But that is where it stays. Life goes on. Things change. Relationships and, and personalities. Hopefully, you know things growing. Being a magician doesn't allow you to escape that by any means or glamorizes it. Anybody that I respect is a magician. We don't see it as um, make their lives, the problems have all gone away because of magic. Um, and some things have become more difficult, but some things become more um, doable or more manageable because of magic. It just depends. The uh, the purpose behind stating that is, yeah, as you extend, you know, just like you said, you're calling for magic. Well, is that it? Did I just need to learn a few spells and, and uh, you know, techniques for getting, you know, some... Uh, things to occur in my life and other people's life. That is, that's fine, but does it go deeper? Where where am I going with this? Who am I with this? Is this something that is a really serious calling? Am I a magician in my person? Or is it just something that I do once in a while? My connection with the spirit world, do do I need to see them? And do I feel like I need to get this closer? Or if I just invoke them and, and ask for them to do something and if it kind of manifests my life, is that good enough? These are all uh, questions. Um, and the scale goes everywhere, and it's not every. Definitely not everybody should be at one point of that scale. It's it's um, different for everyone on any point of their their life. Uh, for me right now, though, it is 
it is a big question uh, continuously. It's it's been a long time uh, since I've wondered how can I does this stuff work? Are they real? And, and can I make this work? I've moved beyond that, but now it's the the questions of the angels back at me. What are you doing with this stuff? How are you making this better in other people's life? You know, what are you going to do with this? information these experiences that you've had now that you got what you wanted what you were after for so long you know now what what, what is the stuff moving um how are you going to enact this in, in the world and everything is it just going to be for you and making everything better for you and so you can feel powerful or you're going to put it somewhere else and and uh you, there's a lot of different questions depending on what level that you're at with this stuff well it seems like one of the things that you're doing with your knowledge is you're actually putting workshops to the, the public, um, and you had a workshop in London not that long ago, and you're going to have another workshop, I think locally, right, in Colorado soon. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. it's a workshop for yeah, it's a workshop for Western ceremonial magic. So that that's correct, and it's mm -hmm. an in-person workshop, correct? Yeah, it's um. It went really fantastic in, in the UK. Um, most of the attendees there being magicians or practitioners on various levels. Just had one or two that were not, but uh, still got a lot out of it. And uh, it was fantastic because I was using the techniques that I learned, whether they were for centering, for shielding, for protecting, uh, for being able to use some very practical things. And then the basis of Western ceremonial magic is consecration. And simple and every grimoire and everything if you got to be able to take something consecrate it make it magical make it spiritual make it dedicated to whatever purpose you're making it for and how do you do that and how does that happen is is a major focus in that and are you doing it from a liturgical magic perspective a lot magical perspective or a folk magical perspective and these are the, the three points that I hit it on and, and how to do this and, and make your practice better so even in three days, by the second and third day, um, people were moving some significant energy around the, the room, and we had a current outside um, working with the elements. Um, it was awesome. So being able to share face-to-face -face and, and, um, and do magic, not just talk about it, but to actually do it and work with people uh, who are doing it as well has is, is been a fantastic experience for me. Ah, so this isn't just a lecture. This is like a workshop. No, it is a workshop. People are going to be doing some work, and, and they were getting pretty exhausted by the end, but everybody was very happy on, on what they were able to achieve. So. so you mentioned that in the workshop, a lot of it is learning how to consecrate things. So technically, let's say my iPhone. If I do a lot of, I don't know, like business on my phone, a lot of people do that. Can you consecrate your iPhone, and then that will help your business? Is that is that what we're talking about, or are we talking about going into nature and getting a branch or something and consecrating that. Yeah, so consecrating and then um, maybe empowering it um, or uh, imbuing it with certain properties can be different. Uh, consecrating is, if you read through all the grimoires, um, they stress over and over and over again, it must be virgin. Well, what does that mean? Well, virgin is, it's new, it hasn't been used for anything uh, else, and, and uh, you are taking it and making it specifically for its intended purpose. That's what virgin is. It's brand new. So um, that's why you like, well, not, why not use a kitchen knife and I can cut my steak and then I can throw something with it. Uh, if you're going by traditional magic, no way, no how. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to have something new and specifically 
designed to be used for that magical uh, purpose only. Um, so that's consecration, and um, it was uh, an act of priests, and that's one of the first things that you learn to do when you join the, the priesthood, is consecration and exorcism, uh, in effect, being able to remove negative uh, properties and have it blessed by your concept of the ultimate divine, uh, and then possibly eventually a specific spirit or angel, so that its, it's office is intended for a very you know, specific uh, purpose that way. And not exorcism like uh, exercising uh, necessarily a person uh, in that regard, but exercising a place, uh, banishing as they call it, we, uh, we go into that, and exercising consecrating things. Uh, through this very specific practice that is found everywhere in the grimoires. And it's neat. People learn how to make holy water. People learn how to make blessed salts. People learn how to bless and consecrate um, incense. Wait, you can how make you holy water if you're not together. a priest? Uh, that is kind of debatable. Classically, no. You have to go through that specific initiation ordination uh, to, to bless underneath the church. But if we're going outside of that, like, again, liturgical lodge and folk and all of those different sections uh, use consecrations to, to various degrees. You have uh, consecrations from the Taoist, um, from the Buddhist and everything, and you know, it's the same kind of thing. You're, you're inducted into a line, a conduit of tradition, uh, which is something that helps enable authority. But a true magician, somebody who is called, even without the backing of a tradition, Yes, can concentrate and make holy, blessed water. The next one that you're going to do, it's in Colorado. And when's it happening? It's going to be happening in June. Um, and I don't check the dates, but it's, I think, June 7th, 8th, and 9th. It goes for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And uh, it'll be a three-day intensive uh, skills of the ceremonial magician workshop. So it's uh, a repeat of what I did in the UK with, uh, you know, new things uh, for sure, depending on what the uh, participant skill level will be, but um, yeah, I'm excited, looking forward to it. So, Roder, thank you so much for talking to me. This was such a cool, cool conversation. Yeah, definitely my end as well. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm glad we finally were able to connect. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off. <laughs>